what is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? Then this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today I will interview Kiera Leon, an architect and principal at the Melbourne Office of Design Inc. company. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, their special approach to the design projects, biophilic design and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Kiara Leon is a design architect with over 15 years experience on a broad range of project typologies. Passionate and curious about learning and innovation, he explores biophilic design approaches to architecture. Clients and colleagues appreciate his interactive working style and thorough and logical methods of investigation. Starting with feasibility studies and concept design, Kieran is engaged at every project phase including documentation and project administration. His portfolio spans health and well-being, residential and educational facilities. He aims to create environments that encourage positive human experiences, interaction and connection. He involves his clients, stakeholders and design teams in not merely meeting the brief, but exceeding its expectations. And with that, Kieran, welcome to the podcast. Let's start with this sentence from your official website. Just as natural habitats continuously evolve, contemporary architecture must flex to respond to current and future community needs, nurturing them physically, culturally, and emotionally. Could you please elaborate a little bit more? Why is it important and what does it mean to you? Sure. That comes back to start a lot of projects with a reference to some biophilic design principles and the idea that whether you're designing a building, uh, a whole building or part of a building, external area and urban design, it, it is a habitat that, that you're creating. It's nothing which is fixed. It will, whether it changes through time, seasons, through its use, things will, will always evolve. And I think it's being conscious of that as you're designing things that you're not designing for a final outcome. You're sort of providing a place of opportunities, I guess. And the consciousness of that, that if you can understand current needs, perhaps envisage what the future needs might be, but also accept that you can't define and understand all of those needs as well. And then the nurturing side of things physically, culturally, emotionally, the acknowledgement that it's beyond just creating physical comfort that there's also a whole lot of other factors that come into people's, you know, humans, emotional and physical health and well-being. And I believe that it's really important to address all of those qualitative and quantitative things. All right. Thank you. Let's jump into the first official question. What does the future of cities mean to you and to your practice? Yes, we were chatting before. And like I said, I feel like I'm perhaps a little underqualified to talk on the future of cities, but also acknowledging that the work that I'm doing and the things we're involved with does define the future of cities and creates its, you know, all of the pieces that make a whole. So I think the future of cities for me and the work that I do is about what I really love with projects is the ability to have a positive impact on people's lives and the more people that I can have an influence on the panels through through the projects and the teams that I'm working with, the better for me. And I think if projects can have an influence that goes beyond the footprint of the building is really in, in the most successful outcome for those projects. So that's what it really means for me is I have a, a limited or greater or lesser than other people, I guess, sphere of influence through the work that I do. But if you can be conscious of the positive difference that you can make within that space that you have, I think that that's really exciting. What are the three biggest concerns or fears regarding the future of cities? Fears and concerns, I mean, 
climate change is a fairly easy, easy one. That's a big, huge question and challenge which we need to face. I also think that a loss of community and connection for people is a really big challenge mm -hmm. and concern of mine for cities in the future. And specifically thinking about Melbourne, and I'm sure that Melbourne's not the only place, I've got a real concern about the impact of both current and future development on the outcomes and livability of cities too. I think that we've got some real challenges to deal with what has happened in the past however many years, but you know, 10, 15 years, and then what is currently happening as well. What does it concerns you about that? An example would be, look, some of the poor urban outcomes of the inner city development. I mean, you'd look at Melbourne's CBD, South Bank as an example as well, where the sheer density of the development, which has gone on there without any real consideration to what happens down at street level, mm -hmm. I think is creating issues which will either need to be addressed in the future or accepted as really poor outcomes for those spaces. So in your practice, you try to influence those urban habitats as well? Yes, we don't. At Design Inc, we're not involved with, I guess, developer-led projects, generally speaking. I do have a background in working on projects like at previous practices. And the real challenge, I guess, is that because they're developer-led projects, the outcomes are driven primarily from a profit perspective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the sort of broader good design outcomes are really driven by what councils define turns into, not for all projects, but often it's a situation of minimum compliance rather than best practice. Yeah, it's very hard to move forward best practice if there is a minimum compliance from the uh, regulations. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Then what are the three biggest opportunities for the future of cities? Yes, I think some of them are the opposites or the, you know, turning around some of those fears. When I was thinking about this, I did write technology, but it does have three question marks next to it. I feel like mm -hmm. it's a double-edged sword. I think it's got some mm -hmm. potential. There's obviously things that are happening currently, which are really positive, I think, to improve the sustainability and livability of Mm -hmm. cities and maybe someone will figure out how to fix you know, my first thing that I raise of climate change through technological means but I'm also not entirely confident or what other damage we might do along the way to, to get there. Uh, I think that there's a growing appreciation of nature and natural experiences broadly speaking I think if you used the word biophilic design still a bit of a strange word for people but if you used it even two or three years ago you'd probably get quite a different response than you do today. So I think it's positive to see that there's a greater appreciation of that. And I've been, you know, like even speaking to local councils and things who are now starting to include it in the brief for, for some projects, which is really interesting to see. So I, I think that that side of things, the appreciation of nature, natural experiences, is a real opportunity, which is multifaceted, I think, with the benefits that it can bring. And mentioned sort of the fear of loss of community and connection. I think that people, that there are also people, institutions, there's a greater appreciation of the benefits that community and connectivity with people brings as well. So while I have some concerns about that, I think that there's also some steps being made to enable those sorts of things or be conscious of what benefit it brings. Could you describe what biophilic design means? Sure. So biophilic design is based on the hypothesis that human beings are hardwired to have reactions to nature. Mm -hmm. So through evolution, the type of environment that 
humans evolved within. There's certain types of experiences, whether it be sound, visual, types of feelings that a place gives you, and that's been studied quite in depth to you know provide some real outcomes for the positive impacts that that has on people's health and well-being so it's really about connection to nature but also natural experiences that don't necessarily need to involve true nature that can evoke those natural experiences and how that impacts people's health and well-being did attention go more for the biophilic design in the covid pandemic Yes, definitely. I attended a talk which was Dominic Kess was speaking a part of that and she's literally written the book on some of these things. I mean, biophilic design isn't all about having plants inside houses, but the amounts of indoor plants that people brought into their spaces as this appreciation of what they weren't getting, I think was a real appreciation of that. And I think they have an app or a website where you can actually go and map out, I think, where the plants are and how many you have and it tells you whether you need more or less plants to be healthy in your room which i think is quite amazing and you know just anecdotally speaking to people i know so many people who during lockdown made a very conscious activity to go and spend time in nature during that lockdown yeah it's very interesting and uh, what are the three biggest strengths for the future of cities i found this one a little bit hard so correct me if i'm interpreting this incorrectly but i think I haven't got three. I've just sort of got one point here, but it's multifaceted as I guess people is, you know, broadly speaking, what people can do. And I spoke before about, you know, the we do, I don't work on the broad design of a whole city, but you have opportunities of influence and that you know, shifts if you're, depending on what you do in your life, but everyone has the opportunity to to have an impact with what they do. And that consciousness or empowerment or acknowledgement of that, I think will go a long way to, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess, enabling what will hopefully be a positive future for the city. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the strengths are the people who are consciously working and acknowledging that they have influence on the city. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Awesome. That's really good. Then (laughs) what is your role in the future of cities? Yeah, sure. So my role, as I mentioned before, I think it's about my role, my profession. We're designing buildings. I get really excited about, you know, buildings that can have the most people possible visiting them and the broadest range and type of people. So doing a community center currently, which has early learning, it has community learning, it's a library, it's got community function rooms, it's got neighborhood learning, you know, neighborhood learning runs with everyone from school students through to senior citizens and that sort of thing. So I think the ability to bring a real diversity of people and just the number of people that you can reach and have a positive influence on, I don't think that architecture is going to save the world, but I think that we can help enable things to get there. So I guess my role is like when we were digging into when you asked me what it meant by that sort of quote, it's being as conscious as as I can be, at least. And with it's not just me designing buildings, working with a team, but, you know, conscious that what we can influence and what the projects could be used for and really just seek 
you know, the most opportunity that we can find within our briefs to really, you know, exceed what our clients directly want, who we're servicing, but also thinking about what the broader impact is for the building from an urban perspective, all of the different kinds of people which are going to interact and use those buildings. You know, if we can make, broadly speaking, if we can make people's lives better through the buildings that we create, I think that that's then going to help create a better future city. Mm -hmm. I guess that's from one side of things, from an experiential point of view. And then from a more functional perspective, you know, if we can push sustainability or regenerative type agendas as well, I think that that can pull along industry. I think, you know, the influence you can have with a particular building, but then also how you might be able to, the community's interest that we're working on, it's going, it's seeking passive house certification and um, mm. living building challenge pedal certification, right? So it's going to be the first of its type to achieve those things you know, really setting a great example that hopefully others can follow. Mm -hmm. So there is also leading by example. and Definitely. Mm -hmm. Nice. That's really good. Could you please tell us your underlying principles for your design practice? Sure. How is it different from the biophilic design? Yeah. Okay. So biophilic design provides a way to, a lens, I guess, through which to look at buildings or to mm -hmm. analyze a design. It's not a how to guide if you do this and this and this, um, okay. and then you end up with a beautiful building. And a lot of buildings as well, like you know, some of the most amazing pieces of architecture, you can assess through a biophilic design lens and they would achieve amazingly if you were to give them a score rating against the 14 principles, but they definitely wouldn't have started from those as first principles. Mm -hmm. So at Designing, we have a very broad approach that says we want to create healthy buildings. Mm -hmm. So that's a very big kind of subject of healthy buildings. The work that we've done to sort of refine that is thinking about it in terms of experience and function for a building. Mm -hmm. And regardless of the building which we're working on, we have sort of distilled or refined these five ideas of natural experiences that we want people to have. And again, there's no one size fits all. We don't necessarily have a style or an outcome for buildings, but we have a typical approach of how we do things. But those natural experiences of beauty, joy, comfort, learning, and belonging. Mm -hmm. And they're not particularly prescriptive, but that's because there is no one size fits all, but kind of provides us with touch points of when we're thinking about a design, we want to make sure what's appropriate, what's relevant for this type of building, how can these things be included, really? So that's from an experiential side of things. From a functional side of things, we like our buildings to conserve. So, you know, use as little as possible. It's a bit counterintuitive. If you're building new buildings, that's not particularly sustainable as a starting point. So we do like to reuse as much as possible. Harvesting side of things, that's a little more straightforward. If you think about whether you're solar energy, water, other things like that. And then also the way that a building can renew that's probably the hardest of the three but you know it's definitely a challenge that we're up for and looking at how a building you know or how your sort of work on a project could improve something from what was there previously or provide you know actually giving back rather than constantly taking away from the system so many things to dive in but <laughs> let's let's start with the last one this renew idea are you talking about in this kind of thinking existing buildings or this is for new buildings as well existing and 
So it's probably more thinking about the renew side of things. Opportunities there are really how the buildings operate and function once mm -hmm. they're sort of complete. So, you know, from an ideal sort of point of view, you know, how you can have a sort of circular economy or sustainability cycle within those sorts of things. Some of the type of things which living building challenge buildings achieve, right, where they have a requirement to be productive of a certain amount of food, which is going to be consumed on site. You know, if a building can be net positive, you know, as far as its energy requirements or actually be carbon neutral or mm -hmm. negative. You very well <laughs> explained conserve and produce. How do you work with the broad five natural experiences, the beauty, joy, comfort, the last two? Yes, beauty, joy, comfort, learning and belonging. So that is often done with working with the stakeholders mm -hmm. projects. So I personally really, really love engaging with the people who are going to use the projects or be, you know, the people who are operating the services of that. I can expand on each of those things, but what we sort of broadly do is part of it is with stakeholders is providing them with a kind of language to be able to express, mm. express things. Right. These sort of principles are something that we share with stakeholders up front. And it's kind of a way of unlocking things that they might. It's a bit of a process to discover the things that they kind of had a bit of an inkling that, you know, they might have wanted or to express, but to be able to provide them with a way to express that. And we do that with whether it's with these words or with a whole bunch of images of nature and connections mm -hmm. that they might sort of make between things. But if I go through those principles, I guess, is that belonging is about a connection between memory and place. It's about breaking down front door barriers and thresholds and then creating creating spaces within a building that kind of creates some gravity for people, like whether mm. it's you know, a gardens, atriums, courtyards, but these places that make you feel like you don't need permission to be there. Mm. The idea of learning is relatively straightforward, and that's whether that's the activity that goes on within the building, but also the acknowledgement that the way that you design or articulate a building can actually communicate the functions that it is doing as well. Mm. All the materials you use and how you might detail things. Comfort is about both physical comfort, mm -hmm. but also not necessarily trying to provide, you know, perfect environment, which is always at that whatever you want to set about 22, 23 degrees with the right amount of humidity, but having mm -hmm. some thermal variety and giving users control over those things, you know, about how you actually have some variation in light and providing the appropriate sort of acoustics, not just you know, something which is sealed. Joy is more of an intangible thing, but it's about those, whether it's a kind of a wow moment within the building if that's appropriate for it but you know also kind of something that you know creates joy you know like how people can actually have an emotional response to a building mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. there's beauty mm -hmm. which is a bit subjective depending on who you talk to but for us it's about doing more with less and just creating simple designs that may find some inspiration in nature but really just, you know, simple kind of forms that build from and can be inspired from natural mm -hmm. analogies, I guess. That's the kind of five things. And getting back to your question of how we sort of bring them into our buildings, we sort of weave them through either, you know, talking with stakeholders, but when we start projects, we will talk to them about some key principles that will address some functional things that they want. Mm -hmm. And then there'll also be some key principles that might drive a conceptual outcome. But we introduce those not as sort of statements, but more as questions. 
We want to engage with the stakeholders or clients and hear what they think about those, but also give them some ownership of those things too. Mm -hmm. That sounds amazing. All of these five natural experiences are very subjective. If you just hear these five words, Mm -hmm. how can you manage to help the stakeholders to come to an agreement or a compromise? Because there, there could be a very wide range in all of these experiences, what means beauty for one person, maybe it doesn't really matter for the other mm. as beauty. How can you bridge these gaps? Yeah, it's part of it is working with stakeholders is making sure everyone understands expectations of what you're asking from people, because it's not you know, the projects that have a whole range of stakeholders, right? If you were to take everybody's comments and thoughts on things, you'd never kind of get anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about sort of shaping those conversations as to who is best to provide input. And, you know, of course, as there's always hierarchies in stakeholder groups, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about being quite open about that. And with like, you know, the beauty side of things, or, you know, when you're presenting something and you're saying, you know, do you like how this looks or not really? Mm-hmm. But by the time we sort of get to that, you sort of take them through a process and explain why decisions have been made and what is driving them. So that's about sort of taking them on that journey with you, giving them ownership of those principles, mm-hmm. then means that what you present back to them, if we're doing our work well, is, you know, showing them an outcome that they have agreed to. You kind of give them a framework by which to assess what you're showing mm-hmm. to people. But look, you know, competing priorities between stakeholders can be really challenging. I forget the name of the person who was involved, but it was about a participatory design sort of thing. And they had the the belief, which I think is great, if you can achieve it, that, you know, in stakeholder consultation, it should be win-win. You know, if someone's losing, then we're not doing our work well enough, which I think is a great thing to aspire to. Mm -hmm. This somehow seems to me that you are investigating the design brief, which are provided by the clients. And then you do a rebriefing or some kind of answer to the original design brief. Yeah, it is. More often than not, the design briefs that you get don't necessarily suggest, you know, a design outcome. Functionally driven, of course, some things, there'll be certain principles which you can kind of lean on or reference from how they like to portray themselves or if they have a strong link to something, whether it's the site or the history or those sorts of things. But yes, I think for any design, you know, and this is what I sort of when I'm working with students as well at university, you kind of have to give, you have to provide the parameters that you are intending to work towards. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of gives a framework, like I said before, to assess these things. Otherwise, you just put something up there and it's, you know, you just have to say, well, does it look nice or doesn't it? <laughs> right. But there's so much more to it than just that. But you have to kind of put in that background work to give them the tools by which to assess what you're putting forward. So there is some education as well with the client to let them help mm-hmm. them understand the design, help them understand the basic principles. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's really awesome. All yeah. right. And you mentioned students. So how do you incorporate this kind of thinking into your teaching? Yes. Well, look, previously it's been a, taken a bit of a pause since COVID came around, but a couple of times we did master's studios at Melbourne University for levels CDE students. So that was a design studio, which was titled Beyond Biophilia. So it's pretty obvious what the theme there was. And that was really around creating hypothetical 
community centre, although it was based quite firmly in reality. So it had some quite real outcomes with a real focus on how you can use um, biophilic design principles as a starting point and focus for a real people experience centred way of designing. So that was an example which was really closely focused on those outcomes. I'm actually involved right now with another studio at Melbourne Uni, so similar level, but it's called an integrated design studio, which is with engineering and architecture students and ourselves. We're involved with Atelier TN as ESD consultants, and that's looking at the sustainable or regenerative possibilities for lab buildings. But again, we'll be introducing to them biophilic design principles. The focus for that is about lowering or removing the amounts of carbon used in lab buildings. But we also do want to sort of keep in the back of students' minds or possibly in the front of their minds that building performance is one thing, but health well-being of people is incredibly important as well. That's sort of where biophilic lens really lends itself incredibly well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned community and uh, connection as yes. a fear and an opportunity. Yes. How do you address this in the design process and the design outcome? Sure. From a process point of view, a, a lot of it is referring those five experience, which mm-hmm. I've talked about, do provide a framework. I think if you can acknowledge and achieve those things, you're naturally going to create a space which people will want to use. Community side of things does depend a lot on the type of building that you're creating. Obviously, like, you know, we're doing this community centre in Glenroy, which is a large library, right? So it's pretty clear you've got some great opportunities to create something for the community. If it's yeah. something which is more like, you know, this integrated design studio where it's a lab building, there is still some community aspects, but it's much mm-hmm. more focused, right, around what is community on a workplace, how do people interact. From a process point of view, I guess that it's looking at those opportunities beyond the, the functional brief of things. Mm-hmm. Of course, with libraries now, a key acknowledgement and point of the functional brief is about a community space it's about a library as the third place you know it's people's offices it's someone's living room it's where you meet your friends you know it's where you go for quiet study because you don't have that place at home so there's all of those sorts of opportunities you know and in the instance of the library and community center we were very conscious with creating a range of spaces to suit a variety of uses and also you know not trying to and i think one of the challenges is not trying to force our preconception of what a community space should be Mm. you know it's not all about being able to get a big group of people together or you build this building and all of a sudden people make all of these friends once they go in the front door Mm -hmm. right but it's also about a place where you know people can just sit by themselves you know Mm -hmm. but be around other people and that kind of level of community or comfort you get by sharing a space by yourself it's a whole range of those things Mm -hmm. have you gone back to previous projects to see how the the five experiences are for you personally and how the stakeholders are using the buildings and how they are experiencing the intended outcome? We have for a few and it's something that we want to we want to start getting better at and doing more of because obviously, you know, we can have all these great ideas about what the outcomes are going to be and, you know, all, all of that. But the real test is how it actually gets used. 
But I mean, a great example of that is Ballarat Community Health Building is one which Design Inc. did. Oh, when was it? It might have been up to maybe seven or eight years ago, I think. So it's a community health building, but there was a real opportunity was sort of found in the brief to create this shared space inside and a bit of an amphitheater, which or some large sort of seating, which can also be used for events and things that opens up to a shared space. So that was kind of all, it wasn't a key kind of briefed element, but there was mm-hmm seen as creating this big opportunity within the brief and constraints of the project and they've sort of found so this is a it's a healthcare building right people go there to see doctors or physios and that sort of thing when someone from our office was visiting that there was a sort of group of older women who were sitting around the steps and things there and they asked one of the the staff what they're doing they oh this is just where they meet up on Fridays every week to trade the um, produce which they grow in their gardens so you know that kind of outcome I think is beautiful and shows that like that's a real success of a project I think and there's no way during the design of the project that you ever would have tried to design a space for that to happen but I think that's you know when I was saying right at the start about not being able to understand perhaps know what all of the uses could be but to allow that potential Mm -hmm. and opportunity for those kind of uses. Mm -hmm. Amazing perfect point for stop so (laughs) I highly appreciate your time thank you very much for participating and answering my questions. Kieran's interest in stakeholder engagement and the design journey seems to be really promising, not to mention the positive outcome of people enjoying and using the spaces more diversely as they originally intended. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Kieran's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the website where the transcripts and show notes are available. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast?